21 through 35. read the word of the Lord. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in danger, sorry, in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. But before I get into that, I want to share with you guys a little story from my childhood. So growing up, I had a big family. Um, There's eight of us now, but back at this time, there was six before we adopted the two youngest. And my oldest sister always got the privilege of babysitting us whenever my mom and dad would leave. And so I always made it my effort as a young kid to basically be as much of a nuisance to her as I could. Uh, and so if she said left, I wouldn't write, and basically was just as annoying as a little brother could be. And I remember most of these nights would end with me in my room waiting for my mom to get back. And I remember one time distinctly uh, watching my mom and dad pull in, and I knew my sister was going to tell her everything I did. Um, and sure enough, she did. And my mom comes in my room, and she gave me an adequate punishment, but I think the worst part of all was my mom uttered the words, I want you to go apologize to your sister. And I knew that was not something I wanted to do, nor was it sincere, because uh, I wasn't really sorry. Um, but I went, I apologized to my sister, and she graciously forgave me. But it didn't change me. I wasn't genuine in coming before my sister and telling her I was sorry. And it was evident in the way that, you know, the next time my mom and dad went out and my sister watched us, I was just as obedient or disobedient and obstinate as I was the time before. But unlike that forgiveness that did not change me, God's forgiveness changes us. When we come before the Lord in genuine repentance and he forgives us, we ought to look different. There ought to be something that happened. So as we look today at this 
parable. I think that's what we're going to get out of it, is that God's forgiveness changes us. Before I get into it, I want to give some context as to where we're at here on this portion of Matthew 18. So right prior to this, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's giving them guidance for essentially how to live in the life of the church. And he's talking about rebuke. So he says, if your brother wrongs you, go to them, call them out, rebuke them. Uh, If they do not listen, bring one or two more and go to them and rebuke them. And if they still do not listen, treat them as a Gentile. So Peter, logically in his head, he's connecting these dots. If I rebuke my brother, then the, the hopeful end goal is that they'll repent. And if they repent, then I have to forgive them. So now Peter's asking the question that we see in verse 21. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Peter, in asking this question, is even being pretty pious. Because at the time, the Jews had a limit, essentially, on forgiveness. They said that if somebody came to you three times, repenting and asking for forgiveness, that you would give it to them. But if it was any more, if it was four times, you would withhold it because they did not want people to misuse someone's mercy and grace. So as we see Peter asking this question, it really seems he's probably, you know, puffing his collar a little bit, really bold-chested, thinking, oh, I'm, I'm being really generous and kind with this. And sure enough, as we see from the words of our Lord, Jesus calls him to a new covenant standard. He says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now what Jesus is not telling Peter is to go back to his house and change that tally board that he has from 7 to 77. It's not about keeping track. Your version may even say 70 times 7. The point is, is that Peter's going to be in the business of forgiving. That he's not going to keep track. He's not going to tally but he's going to be prepared that whenever he rebukes a brother and they come before him in repentance, that he's going to forgive. And again, this deeply applies to us because in this parable, Jesus uses the word brother. And in the previous context, he talks of the church. So this is deeply meaningful for us today. And so I hope that as we read it, that our hearts can be uh, just filled with the beauty of God's word, and what he has for us. So my question as we get into this is, are you prepared to forgive without measure? As you get into the parable, I got point one, which we're going to title The Gift. So we're going to go ahead and jump in in verse 23. Our Lord opens the parable by saying, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle... One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, when we look at this, I want to bring it into context a little bit. The amount that this servant owed, it says it was 10,000 talents, which if you were to equate it to today's wage, it'd be about 7.2 billion pounds. 
in the modern world or about equivalent to 200,000 years wages. So in other words, this servant was really not able to pay this amount. It was not something that he would even be able to bring to the king even after he worked his whole life. If he were to work from the time he was born to the time he was 80, he would have to work 2,500 lives to even achieve this much money. Now, I'm using a lot of literal terms, but again, the point is that this debt is immeasurable. It's not something this servant, especially in the ancient world, would have ever been able to achieve. This man is standing before the king with a debt that he has no way to pay. So he does what any servant in this position can do. And that's get on his knees and beg. And so he implores the king, asking him to have mercy. I think the interesting thing here is he does not ask for the debt to be removed. Nor does he ask for a discount of 10% off. (laughs) But he just asks for more time. As if he thinks he could pay this debt back. He just wants more time. But the king, seeing him imploring, has mercy on him. And he gives him far more than he ever could have imagined. He far exceeds the expectations of this servant. Where the servant just asked for more time so that he could work hard and pay it off. The king was gracious enough to give him the debt completely paid off. I think this reminds me a lot of our infantile but genuine repentance when we come before the Lord and we say, you know, Lord, have mercy on us. And I'm sure we made a lot of promises to God when we first believed that we couldn't have fulfilled. We probably thought, Lord, if you save me, I'll do this and I'll do this and I'll do this and I'll make it worthwhile. But as we see, beautiful reminder in John 6, 63, it says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So likewise with us, we come before the Lord and we ask for mercy, but there's nothing we can do. We don't bring not even $10 to the table to contribute to it, but we surrender wholeheartedly and give thanks that Christ has taken it all for us. And even beyond that, beyond Christ paying the debt, He does so much more. He exceeds our expectations because he brings us into adoption as sons. So not only is the debt paid and done with, but we're brought into this loving, intimate relationship with the triune God, which we are so undeserving of. It's like if this Christmas you were to go to whoever buys you your Christmas gifts, whether that be your mom or your grandparent or maybe your spouse. You say, all I want for Christmas this year is just a pair of socks, and I'll be happy. (laughs) That's all. And then sure enough, you wake up Christmas morning, and they hand you these nice pair of keys, and you're like, there's no way. This cannot be happening. And as you go out to the driveway, sure enough, there's your favorite car, the most expensive and luxurious car that you could imagine, that you've wanted your whole life but could never afford. And it's there for you. It was far beyond what you asked. But even this analogy fails because it's measurable. 
We can calculate how much a car is worth, but we can't calculate the love of Christ. We see in Ephesians 3, 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Our measureless debt, something we could not write on a receipt paper, has been bought with a measureless amount of love. I think of the imagery in the book, The Pilgrim's Progress. It's very popular in the States. I don't know how popular it is here. Um, but it's a beautiful book about the Christian life. And as the main character, Christian, is walking down this road, he comes to the cross. And he's got a heavy burden on his back. And as he bows before the cross, and the truth of the cross is revealed to him and pours on him, the burden falls off his back and rolls down the hill. And so, saints, this evening, look behind you. Because the rock of debt and of sin and the burden that is weighing so heavily on our backs that we could not pay is rolling down the hill. And it's been paid for. Some measureless debt has been paid for by an immeasurable amount of love. It's not even a love that we can compare to earthly love. You might think of how much my mom loves me or how much my spouse loves me, or how much my children say they love me. But it's far more than that. Even those you can measure, at some point, human love is going to fail. But Christ will not. It'd be like if I gave you a cup and asked you to go down to the prom and go start digging the water out of the ocean. And let me know when you get to the bottom of it. I'd be waiting for quite a while. You wouldn't be able to empty it. But even that analogy fails. Because you can still measure the water in the ocean. But you cannot measure the love of God. I don't know if you guys have ever seen those videos of candy floss when it touches water. And it instantly evaporates. The water just eats it and it almost looks as if nothing happened to it. And you could put a, a candy floss bunch this much into a cup that's that big and it would change nothing. But even that example, if you were to compare it to our debt being overwhelmed by the love of God, it still fails because it's still measurable. And my point tonight is that Christ's love is immeasurable toward us when we had a debt that was immeasurable. He has welcomed us into every part of his life. He is in every part of our life. There's no shoebox that we can put all of our scary things inside and close and put under the bottom shelf of the closet to hide from him. He has welcomed himself into every part of our life and taken on every debt that we have. So tonight, as we think of the gift that's been given by the king, dwell on Christ. Dwell on the, the beauty of the work that he's done for us. The far exceeding of expectations that he's done for us. And the beautiful relationship that we get to have with the Father. And with the Son. And with the Holy Spirit. And if you're here tonight and you're an unbeliever. I want you to know that your debt is immeasurable. 
And it's not something you can pay on your own. Something that is weighty beyond measure. But if you come before the Lord in genuine repentance and call out to him, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins, to pay the payment that you cannot, and to even adopt you as a son of the Most High God. So that's our point one, the gift. So my encouragement there is to dwell on Christ and to dwell on the gift that we have. But that's not the end of the story. As we transition to this next section, we have this beautiful connecting word, but. In verse 28, it says, But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So our second point, the response. We have the first of the gift and the second of the response. Now I would imagine our expectation going into this section is one of hopefulness. We see this servant going from so much grace and I imagine him skipping out of the king's throne room just filled with joy. I would hope he's going to go throw a party with his wife and children since they no longer have to be sold. I'd imagine he would go give gifts to his friends because he's so overjoyed that he no longer has to put this money aside to try to pay off a debt that he cannot. I would imagine he would invite all his friends over and throw the biggest party you could imagine. But instead we have a response that leaves us asking, what happened? Where we saw grace get given and we expect so much joy, we get quite the opposite. The response we would get when we see godly parents raising children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and then when those kids walk away and we're left thinking, what happened? Or maybe in a less serious note, it's when your favorite sports player is in the finals and he misses every single opportunity he has to score. And they lose the whole series. And you're left thinking, what happened? Maybe it's when a really healthy family member gets diagnosed with something terminal. And you're thinking, what happened? None of these things make sense. When you look at the first part of it, you think, well, this should be the logical conclusion, but it doesn't happen. And so we're left thinking, what happened? What happened to the servant that when he got grace, instead, we see him immediately rush out, filled with aggression, aggression enough to grab his fellow servant by the neck to tell him to pay him what he owes. This amount that the second servant owed the first servant, 100 denarii, would be about equivalent to 10,000 pounds nowadays. In other words, the first servant's debt was 730,000 times bigger than this servant's debt. And to put that into a more pictorial image, if the first servant's debt was stacked on top of itself to the height of Mount Everest, the second servant's debt 
would be a mound on the ground, half an inch tall. That's the drastic difference that we're talking about here. But even then, that is still not the goal of what our Lord is getting at here. The point is that the first servant was forgiven so much, he will not even forgive this servant a payment that is possible to pay. The second servant would easily be able to pay this amount. The first servant will not. Will not give it to him. And so the servant does the exact same thing the first servant does. And he gets on his knees and he pleads. But where the king gave the servant pity, this servant only gives the other total refusal. Where the king bent his ear and listened and gave abundantly, the servant will not even incline his ear to his fellow servant. And saints, how often is it with us that when we, we think of the debt that we've been forgiven from and the pity that Christ had on us, that when he saw us from on high, he decided to lower himself as a human and to come and to die for us in that great amount of pity that he had for us. And too often we withhold things from one another. And we refuse to listen to one's plea and to forgive because to us it seems like such a grave debt. But nothing was too grave for our Lord. He still came down, still had pity on us, still died for us. Another faulty analogy, but I hope it helps push the point, is that it'd be as if you won a lottery. I don't know how much they're worth here, but in America it's some that are around $500 million, which is absurd. And if you were to go and win that, Let's say you cash that money and you're holding it all in your hands as you come into your house and your friend's sitting there and he's just been using your, your fork and he's like, hey man, it bent and it snapped off and it's not mendable, but I'll go out right now and I'll go buy you a new fork. It's not a big deal. And you get filled with so much anger. And you pick him up by his collar and you say, how could you do such a thing? And you throw him out of your house and never speak to him again. Although a faulty analogy, that you've been given so much, an amount that I could not fathom, yet you give so little. The very fact that this first servant has the ability to go and grab his second servant by the neck to ask for money in the first place is because he's been given grace by the king. Grace is the only reason he was able to do this in the first place. And yet he extends none of it. So I hope tonight when we read this passage, we're filled with the response that the other servants have in verse 31. Where it says, When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. They were greatly distressed. When they saw what had happened, they asked the same question we're asking. What happened? How did this beginning have this outcome? It didn't make sense to the fellow servants either. And I hope it doesn't make sense to us how somebody could be given so much grace to come out with this outcome. And this is how it looks when we withhold forgiveness from one another, 
when we hold bitterness in our heart, when we refuse to see our brothers and sisters the way Christ sees them, which is beloved, forgiven, as sons of the Most High, as one with him, as his true body here on earth. It doesn't matter how personal the debt is that someone's done against you. For our wrongs against Christ were only personal. We said, Christ, I'm going to go seek pleasure somewhere else because you're just not cutting it. Or Lord, I'm going to go seek joy somewhere else because I'm just not feeling it from you right now. Or Lord, I want to go get peace from this other thing because I just don't get peace in you. We have not sinned against Christ in a way that is not personal. So we can forgive even the most personal of wrongings against us. We ought to forgive even the most personal of wrongings against us. And to forgive it, and not to just leave it there, but to also view them in a way that cherishes them the way Christ cherishes them. So our response should be opposite that of the servant. It should be that we forgive repentant saints liberally, and liberally in the sense of generously without withholding it. To not hold back forgiveness from one another. So we have the gift and we have the response. Now let's look at the punishment as we pick up in verse 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I think the interesting thing to look at first is He calls him a wicked servant. The very thing that in the Lord's prayer we ask to be kept from, Lord, deliver us from wicked, is the very thing this servant is associated with. He's a pig that's run and rolled in the mud as if it's the best thing in the world. And so are we when we withhold forgiveness from one another when we see someone else's debt as something unforgivable, when we've been forgiven so much. The king even draws a cause and effect relationship in this section where he says, it was because you pleaded with me that I forgave you. The pleading is what drew him to pity and the pleading is what drew him to give. And we're called to mirror that. So when somebody pleads with us, We ought to forgive. In verse 33 it says, And should not you have had mercy? Another way that could be translated is, Is it not necessary? And I'll answer that rhetorical question. Yes, it is necessary. We're told in Ephesians 4.32 to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So it is absolutely necessary that we forgive one another. 
So we look and we dwell on Christ and what he's done. And we forgive each other. Because it's what, we've, it's what we know. It's the truest thing that we know. And so this servant who does not forgive is sent with the jailers. Another way this could be translated is torturers. And he's sent there until he pays the debt, which as we know is going to be forever. So you could say he was tortured for eternity or hell. Now, our Lord makes this application very easy for me tonight. He summarizes it all in verse 35 when he says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now my goal tonight, I'm not seeking to make any of you guys doubt your salvation or to make you guys feel as if you need to step on eggshells at every moment as if maybe I didn't forgive that person enough or maybe I'm withholding this to the point of where you fall into despair. Because I'm a firm believer that what the Lord has begun in each one of you, he will continue until completion. He will keep you. However, Christ takes this very seriously. And verse 35 comes straight from the mouth of our Lord. And we should not take it lightly. It's a sign of a true believer that we forgive each other because we've been forgiven. So what do we do? Three application points. The first one, associated with the first point of the gift, is that we dwell on the gift. We dwell on Christ. If we forget the cross, if we don't look back to the cross, if we stray too far that something obscures the view of the cross, we'll ultimately forget it altogether. And if we forget that gift, if we forget the joy of what our Lord did for us, then we will not do that to one another. Remember your Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's pleading for the Father, pleading to the Father on our behalf. Remember him on the cross as he's saying, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. And remember him now as he's seated at the right hand of the Father pleading on our behalf. Dwell on Christ and remember the cross. Don't forget it. This may look like waking up every morning before you go to work as early as it takes to get in devotions and prayer time and reflection. It may look like putting on worship music when you have to because everything else is just driving you insane and you need that reminder Whatever it is, dwell on Christ and remember his sacrifice. Remember his work. Application point two is to forgive repentant saints liberally without holding it back. View them the way the Father views them. When he looks at each one of you, he sees his son who lived the perfect life of obedience who is adored in radiant glory. So let's see each other the way that God sees us. It's Christ. Application point three. It is a necessary sign of a believer. Just as the king punished the servant when this was not the fruit of his life, so with us, this should be the fruit that's flowing from us. 
we should be mirroring and reflecting this because it's been given so graciously to us. So dwell on Christ. Forgive each other liberally. For it is the sign of a true believer. Let's rise and sing in response tonight.